Good morning. Chris and I are absolutely delighted to be visiting with you at uh, Cape Chapel this weekend. I've been in Michigan all through this bitter winter and am thoroughly enjoying the, the summer. And I keep asking myself, how can I enjoy it slower? Because it's all going to end too soon and it's going to get cold again. I don't know how you folks, especially those in Michigan, live that way. I bring you greetings from uh, Lake Victoria in Tanzania. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Chris and I continue to uh, work in the uh, islands of the second largest lake in the world, second only to Lake Superior. Uh, we work in Lake Victoria of Tanzania in the southwest corner. We have about 100 islands in Tanzania, probably in Uganda and Kenya in the north part of the lake. There are another 100 islands. There are roughly 200 islands and a million people. And our main role, goal is uh, church planting and evangelism. And we have found medical ministry to be an absolutely wonderful opportunity for, for sharing our faith. Recently, uh, the orange canoe that you saw uh, Mother Teresa, I mean Chris, in, uh, in that picture. Recently, we filled the, the, that little 15 horsepower up with a tank of fuel, and we started our church leader in Mwanza and gave him enough fuel to get to the uh, first island called Juma. And when he uh, got there, he was received by the believers on Juma Island. And when he was ready to move on, uh, they uh, changied, they collected enough fuel to get him to the next island, and he met with that group of believers and then to the next island. About halfway through it, he and his wife got frightened and tired, went home and took a break and came back, and they and us were quite surprised in the span of four weeks that they visited 28 island churches. Chris and I haven't been part of planting all of those churches, but it's been an absolute uh, adventure to be part of a movement of God, church planting among islands, as you have seen there, that are predominantly uh, fishermen, and they're absolutely uh, wild places to live and visit. We are still convinced that the most effective model of ministry comes from 2 Timothy 2.2. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. That's a three-step process. First, you have to go to where those potentially reliable men are and get to know them and live amongst them. Uh, you've seen how we do that. Before I go any further, I want to give a pitch here for Wanda. Uh, as you'll hear some more of my thoughts uh, as I proceed, International Students Incorporated is a wonderful opportunity right at your doorstep here in Cape Girardeau with the university here to get to know people from other cultures. If you can't go and find them in their home culture, God's enabled them to come and join you in your culture, and it's a wonderful opportunity for you too to identify those people who might be reliable, and then through discipleship and training can become qualified to teach others, and then we have the opportunity to help them envision facilitate them and sometimes even finance them to go out and multiply their faith in their home communities. Chris has worked hard over many years with 12 community health evangelists. She's trained them both in spiritual truths 
as well as uh, preventive medicine. And they go back into their five island communities. They work home to home with uh, their neighbors, teaching them, reproducing the health truth and spiritual truth that they've been taught. Uh, uh, Lake Victoria continues to have among the highest concentration of AIDS in Africa. So they encounter many families that have someone with HIV AIDS and they don't know how to take care of them. So they're able to teach palliative care and sometimes even model to that family how to care for a dying family member. Absolutely wonderful people. The first 12 have each uh, chosen two disciples of their own. So now we have 36 disciples. And Lord willing, we uh, want to enter into a couple more years where those 36 might even become 65 disciples that are community health workers. Most of these people have become pillars in their society, pillars in the church plant where they live, and are just absolutely uh, wonderful heroes of the faith. As you might remember, we have found maternal child health to be an extremely uh, beneficial way to gain the confidence of a brand new rural community for Chris's team and Chris to go into a community and, and help the, the women through their pregnancy and then return with maternal child health clinics to care for those small infants for the first thousand days of their life is a wonderful opportunity and is a real wonderful way of gaining confidence amongst those families. Many years ago, a, a desk officer from the government of Canada came to look at these communities. And they said there are real needs here, but we don't believe that there's any program that's going to be effective because these fishing camps have no society structure. Uh, what she didn't know was that if a church is planted in a non-structured community, that's, that, that local church and the leadership of that local church can be the fabric of that community. And that has been the way that our churches have multiplied themselves through this island, through faithful disciples, faithful community health workers who reteach and multiply the truths that they've learned in their own lives. It's just a, a wonderful adventure. Some of you had meant, have mentioned the, the ship that we have written about in our newsletter, a 150-ton ship, uh, 40 meters long, 120 feet, left in January of last year from Scotland to sail to Mombasa, Kenya. And rather than coming through East Africa and uh, fearing the uh, Somali pirates, the ship came around the coast of West Africa. I was invited to join it in Namibia and help sail the ship around the Cape of Good Hope up the Mozambique Channel to Mombasa. In Mombasa, everything uh, above the top upper deck was unbolted. The 150-ton ship was put on a trailer with 96 tires and then it was transported 500 miles over mountain and valley in Kenya to Kisumu, put back in the lake, bolted back together, and it sailed down to Mwanza. Now, I've arrived in uh, Africa in many ways, commercial airlines. I've, uh, I think, four occasions arrived in Africa in a little uh, Cessna airplane that I flew across the Atlantic Ocean. But I can tell you to, f to, to arrive Africa, particularly to, to come around the Cape of Good Hope, in our own ship was a real adventure. Six knots was pretty slow, but that was an, an adventure nevertheless. And as a pilot, one thing I was reminded of, and I, I know there are pilots in our midst, and I don't want to oversimplify what, what you think of, uh, of pilots, but uh, whether you're moving at eight knots or 120 knots or 300 plus knots, 
navigation is really all the same thing. You look at a map and decide where you want to go and you put a course line. You take your magnetic compass heading and you either put that into your directional heading indicator or your GPS and you start on your trip. And as you go along, you compare what you are seeing on the ground or what your GPS is telling you and you make corrections so that you stay on course. It's all about correcting for drift so that you get to where you want to go in the most efficient manner. I need to say one thing about a boat, a ship that's moving slow. If you go and look at the, uh, look rearward, look aft of the ship, and if the ship doesn't have an autopilot, you can tell through the marks in the water how crooked of a path. This ship did not have an autopilot, so it, it snaked its way from Scotland to Africa. I'm not sure how many extra miles that added, but it was really tough to stay on course. Anyways, that's much like our Christian life, isn't it? We decide where it is that we want to go, and as we're living our Christian life, we're constantly evaluating where we are compared to the truths of God's Word and make corrections in our life to correct for drift. Uh, for a pilot, the, less, the more experienced a pilot, the less corrections. For we Christians, the more corrections we make, the fewer major adjustments we need to make maybe when things go wrong in our lives. A privilege I have of being away and coming back to America uh, every few years is that I have opportunity to evaluate what's been going on in my life and, and think of putting that in some order that might uh, help you in your own life. And that's what I'd like to do this morning. I'd like to share with you a, a smorgasbord of thoughts from God's Word, some experiences, and I do trust that there might be something that can help you in your own drift, your own evaluation of your walk with God. My thoughts this morning come from Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being just, having, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. These words in verse 5 just jumped off the page at me. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. What a most profound and basic truth of the gospel message. I remember when I was a little kid somewhere, I learned the saying, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, Acts 16, 31. God said that, I believe it, that settles it. I wonder this morning if you had one chance to share your faith with someone, what is it that you would want to communicate? Sometimes you might only have one chance. Our son Joshua, who is living with us in Tanzania and is trying to establish his own company, uh, he's hoping to get 
contract work in the, in the gold mines uh, that are springing up all over in Tanzania. For the past year, he's tackled rather uh, a large project. Nine years ago, a 90 uh, ton, 90,000 kilo uh, Russian cargo plane crashed in Lake Victoria taking off from the airport in Mwanza, and it was filled with 54 tons of fish fillets. And the airplane uh, has laid in the lake for those nine years. The main complete wing section uh, has been somewhat near shore, and a number of children and fishermen have, have died by cutting themselves uh, while they were playing around on that wing. So through coordinating with the government and security, military, police, and so on, Josh has been given permission to try to pull his airplane out of the water. So he uh, is scuba diving, he is cutting aluminum underwater, and then in whatever way he can, he's trying to drag that aluminum up on shore and take it to the salvage yard. Uh, believe me, this is a low budget operation. No cranes, no, no, uh, no heavy equipment. He's doing it all first with a five ton chainfall, and then he uh, used the second five ton chainfall, and now he's graduated to a 10 ton chainfall. Anyways, Josh needed a uh, snatch block, an extra pulley, so that he could do uh, double the pulling power. So uh, he took me and we went into Mwanza to try to find a heavy-duty pulley for the size cable he's using. And we went to some Indian friends who have a, uh, we call it a breakdown service. A breakdown is a wrecker or a tow truck. And this Indian family, husband and wife, uh, had been their father's business. Had a very nice garage, very clean, very nice equipment. They had two wreckers, and I, I was ooing and eyeing over their equipment, engaging them in conversation. And they started to tell me about their newborn baby. Their newborn baby's name is Mujahid. And uh, they told me that Mujahid had been born in Mwanza in our government hospital and obviously had some major physical problems that were beyond the ability of our hospital. So the father sprung his baby out of the hospital and they flew him and the wife to Dar es Salaam to the main government hospital. And he soon realized that they were not helping the child either. So they took the baby to India. And in India, they were properly diagnosed. They said that the baby had been born with a, with a swollen brain and that the medicine that they had been giving it in Tanzania, him, uh, was not helpful. They changed the, uh, the medicine the baby started to improve, and they brought him back home. I proceeded to tell me that 24 hours a day, someone in their family sits with baby Mujahid, mother, dad, brother, sister, and their house helper, just trying to uh, tickle its feet, using any kind of stimulation through lights, through sound, through loving care and attention to regain some of the capacity this little baby has lost. And as they were telling me the story, I could just sense the weight in their hearts for their baby Mujahid. So, as I'm sure you would, I asked them if I could pray for Mujahid. And they said, of course. I told them I'd be praying in the, in the name of Jesus. They said that was fine. So I prayed for baby Mujahid, thanked the Lord for their family, for their loving care, and asked the Lord that uh, he would reveal himself to this family, that if God would choose so to heal this baby and by doing so reveal himself. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I prayed. I finished and they were thankful and they were tearful and I excused myself because I didn't want to mix a pastoral prayer, if you will, with, with, uh, with uh, good business negotiations to get the best price on the pulley. So I went out to the car and waited 
Pretty soon, Josh's buddy uh, came out and said, Muse, come inside. Swahili, uh, in Swahili, the word, uh, a respected word for old man is Mze, M-Z-E-E. So that's what they called me. Now, Josh's friends call me another name, too. Uh, that's uh, Dingi in Swahili. Dingi is the, the big old male baboon in a, in a troop of baboons. If you've ever seen one, you would you'd appreciate that more. So they didn't call me Dingi, but they said, Mze, um, you need to come inside. They have said that the deal must be finished between the muse and the mama, the lady. So I went inside, not sure what was going on here. The husband was sitting in a corner, the lady at her little desk, and she was just weeping. And she said, Zay, there is no amount of money that can pay for what you did for us by praying for our baby, Mujahid. We don't want your money. Whatever you can afford us for this pulley, uh, we're happy to take it. But what we really want from you is that you will ask your people to continue praying to your God for our baby, Mujahid. That's all we want. I was so challenged. I'm usually running around and so busy doing things, but something as simple as praying for this dear family at their time of need was such an opportunity, I believe, for the gospel. If you had only one chance to share your faith with someone, would you want to confuse them? Would you want to confuse them with your preferences, with your denominational preferences? I don't think so. In that case, you would only want to convey that God loves Mujahid so much that he gave his son for that child so that that child might come to a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus. Nothing that Mujahid can do but because of God's mercy. A number of years ago, you might remember, Chris, Josh, and I were in the Nuba Mountains of, of what used to be Sudan. Now it's part of northern Sudan. And we were on a Samaritan's Purse project funded by USAID to take six large Massey Ferguson tractors into the Nuba Mountains that had been under civil war for 19 years. The people were living in the mountains and in the caves. And this was a project to encourage them to come out of the caves, to agree to a ceasefire, and to begin planting their own lands. And we went uh, one day to a village, to a small community, where they were deciding as a community whether they would support a fragile ceasefire that was going on or not. And I didn't understand the Arabic that was going on, but as I sat and observed this community, I realized there were only two kinds of people here. There were people that had long white jalabiyas, we call them, uh, robes, wearing kibandikos, skull caps, and I knew that they were Muslims. And there was another smaller group of people on the side. They too had white robes on, and each one of them had a little hand-carved cross around their neck. And they were all standing be behind a, st a tall staff with the cross on the top of it. And I thought to myself, this is amazing. There's no denominational issues here. There's no preferences of the faith. There's no argument over, over, uh, over Scripture. You were either a Muslim or you were a person of the cross. How simple, how simple can the gospel be? Well, there's an, there's a, a symbol that I've become aware, just as a side note to you. In the Arabic language, this is not a smiley face. 
In fact, this is anything but. This is the face of death, of destruction, and of dispersion. This is the letter N in the Arabic alphabet, as I understand. And it, uh, the, word, the letter is called Nun, and the meaning is Nasrani or Nazarene, which is the word used for Christians in the Quran. And as you know, Jesus was called the Nazarene in the Bible. And this is why ISIS paints this sign on the buildings and businesses of Christians, the homes and businesses of Christians for confiscation, pillage, and destruction. And they even put this on the hands of children so that they can identify those later uh, for slaughter. Since these ancient believers would not convert to Islam, Many of them have fled to Jordan, where they are living currently as refugees. The Chaldean or Assyrian church in Iraq today desperately needs our prayers and help as brothers and sisters in Christ. Sure, their Christian tradition, with all of its religious vestments, liturgy, rituals, and iconic veneration of saints, may not be what we are accustomed to in our own uh, denomination or church background, but these people still proudly and boldly proclaim the name of Christ and worship him as the incarnation of the triune God, as man's only means of salvation. Whether it be the cross, whether it be a simple sign of dune, it's extremely significant in our world today, dividing those that are Christians proclaiming the name of Christ or others of other religions. Romans 10.9 tells us that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Nothing that we have done but because of his mercy. Some other thoughts that I've gotten out of the same passage in Titus have to do with some drift that I've identified in my own life and I'd like to share with you from my experiences of the past few years. Maybe, this can, uh, maybe you can identify with this thought. My value to God and my personal identity does not come from what I do. Rather, it comes from what God did for me. Let me say that again. My value to God and my personal identity does not come from what I do. Rather, it comes from what he did. Here are a few things I've discovered about myself. I'm a dreamer. Some people call that a visionary. I don't think it's vision until a dream becomes reality. If it never becomes a reality, it's just a dream. But I can dream up all kinds of ideas for ministry. We have tried tough guy competitions where we brought out a Christian pool shark from New Jersey, and all these young fishermen in these fishing camps uh, spend their days playing pool. And we had a, 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 a tough guy competition for a weekend where, where people were paddling canoes and swimming and playing pool and tug of war. We have had high tea parties for, uh, I want to get my, my politically correct words right here, uh, commercial sex workers in, in a fishing camp and uh, shared with them the faith and the, the teachings uh, on, you at, on AIDS and so on. And we've just tried so many various things for ministry. But my problem is that I often just assume that my plans are automatically 
God's plans. My ideas are just God's. I'm helped a lot in my walk by Oswald Chambers in his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. And Oswald writes this, We plan and figure and predict this or that will happen, but we forget to make room for God to come in as he chooses. There are times when you cannot understand why you can't do what you want to do, when God brings a time of waiting and appears to be unresponsive. Don't fill it in with busyness. Just wait. Never run before God gives you his direction. If you have the slightest doubt, then he is not guiding. Wherever there is doubt, wait. A second thing I've discovered about myself. I often get so busy doing good things that I don't take the time to do the most important things. My friend Oswald writes, the busyness of things obscures our concentration on God. Never let a hurried lifestyle disturb the relationship of abiding in him. Many people today are pouring their lives out and working for Jesus, but are not really walking with him. Beware of anything that competes with your loyalty to Jesus Christ. The greatest competitor of true devotion to Jesus is the service we do for him. It is easier to serve than to pour out our lives completely for him. The goal of the call of God is his satisfaction, not simply that we should do something for him. The third thing I've learned, we can set out to serve God and do his work, but we can easily get out of touch with him. And then the sense of responsibility for the work and its outcome becomes overwhelming and defeated, defeating. And it's never been God's plan that we take upon ourselves the responsibility for the outcome. And when we start to take responsibility for the outcome, often the work is so heavy. And even a greater problem when we try to take responsibility for the outcome is that we start to manipulate events. We start to think that God needs our help to uh, make things happen the way we assume God wants them to happen. And real serious, serious injury is done in God's work because of servants who think they need to manipulate the events to help God out. I didn't plan to tell you this, but I, I will. Uh, some fellow missionaries uh, not so long ago did this to me. Uh, I seriously believe it was fellow missionaries. And uh, someone, well, let me just say someone, put a live round of ammunition in a piece of baggage of my grandchild that I took to the airport. And, of course, it was caught by customs in the x-ray machine, and that started a huge tumble of events. But I genuinely believe it was some people who felt that they needed to, uh, to do something to help God, uh, God's result, what they thought was God's will. So there's great danger when we take upon ourselves the responsibility for the outcome of a ministry. Fourthly, if my identity in value is wrapped up in what I do, what happens to me when I suddenly no longer have that work to do? I'm beginning to understand that retirement is not the same thing for everyone. Ever since I turned 60 and I'm getting these little red cards in the mail that say AARP on them, I'm getting everything from humor to death threats. Uh, I, I guess this is funny. Some, some people wrote, 
a retired husband is often a wife's full-time job. Or when a man retires, his wife gets twice the husband, but only half the income. Someone wrote, loss of identity is a big issue for retirees. Retirement is like choosing to take a seat in death's waiting room for most people. The equation goes like this. Retirement equals losing purpose and meaning in life. Once that occurs, start planning for the funeral. But in this writer's view, if you handle the third act of life effectively, you never retire, you just shift the focus. What happens if you lose good health? If your value and identity come from what you do, what happens when you're suddenly sidelined by an unexpected illness? and all of your future plans are changed. I've been fortunate in my missionary experience to be on the starting team for many years, fully engaged in exciting and successful opportunities. Uh, as a result of what I just told you about three years ago, through some very uh, wrong circumstances, my opportunity to be a, a pilot was taken away from me. And what I didn't tell you about the ship was on the day that the ship arrived in our town of Mwanza, ready to begin its work in Lake Victoria, our leadership pulled Chris and I aside and told us that we were uninvited to be part of that ministry. And that hurt after putting a lot of energy and dreaming into something. When you're suddenly benched or sidelined, those things hurt. We know Scripture says in Romans 8:28, we know that in all things God's works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 1 Peter 1.7 we read, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. These are good verses that have great meaning to me, but oftentimes in my time of rejection or unexpected loss, maybe loss of personal value, loss of knowing where I contribute, they lose their meaning. Many years ago, I had a, a drill instructor over at Fort Knox, Kentucky, that used to stand in front of a recruit that was particularly hard of understanding, and he would say, I remember, Bean Blossom, do you know how you get the attention of a Georgia mule? You hit him up the side of the head with a two-by-four. Well, Oswald says the same thing in a little gentler way. Oswald writes, God speaks in the language you know best, not through your ears, but through your circumstances. As I was reflecting on these truths from Titus 3 and the drift in my own life, in my continued reading, I, I came across Revelation chapter 2. And we won't turn to that for sake of time, but in Revelation chapter 2, there's a letter written to the church at Ephesus. And in that letter, it's written, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Let's go ahead and congratulate ourselves. God knows and recognizes our hard work, our perseverance. It continues to say, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Despite the good work, despite the, the uh, perseverance, 
despite not growing weary, I still hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. The church in Ephesus had taken their eyes off of Jesus and were now focusing on their works that were being done in his name. What was once a love, re love relationship had cooled into mere religion. As believers, our priority must always be relationship over service. It doesn't matter what we have accomplished or have endured for God. What he still wants from us is to treat him as our first love. Our ministry and service must be grounded in and out of our love for him. Our primary focus must be Godward and only then manward. Our work should never replace worship. Our work comes naturally as a result of worship. Have you ever seen anyone fall out of love with their first love? Chris and I are home right now because our youngest daughter, Janice, after 10 years of marriage, has decided to uh, walk away from her first love. And it is so painful to us. And yet, how much more painful is it to our loving God when we become so preoccupied and so busy doing his service that we too lose our first love with him? Oswald writes, the greatest competitor of true devotion to Jesus is the service we do for him. It is easier to serve than to pour out our lives completely for him. Beware of any work of God that causes or allows you to, uh, to avoid concentrating on him. A great number of Christian workers worship their work. The only concern of Christian workers should be their concentration on God. The central point of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a personal relationship with him, not public usefulness to others. Titus 3, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. <laughs>